do you consider yourself a space lawyer? Sorta. <laughs> How helpful is that, right? What a great legal answer. It depends. Welcome to the Astro Esquire podcast. I am your host, Nathan Johnson, and in each episode, I interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. First, my legal disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any of my past, present, or future employers or clients. <sighs> okay, today I'm joined by another friend of mine, someone I got to know four years ago when they first recruited me, Elsbeth Magilton. Hello, my name is Elsbeth Magilton and I am the Executive Director of the Space, Cyber, and Telecommunications Law Program at the University of Nebraska College of Law. Uh, the conversation today, though, is in my capacity as an individual, not in my capacity as a representative of the university, not that I intend to say anything terribly controversial. First question, my, my big headline question for everybody, and I hope this catches on, <laughs> do you consider yourself a space lawyer? Sorta. <laughs> How helpful is that, right? What a great legal answer. It depends. Um, a short answer, and more to the point, is no, not really. I am not a practicing lawyer, right? I don't represent an aerospace company. I am not working for the government. Um, I am not a practicing attorney. I am an academic, and even at that, I am primarily an administrator who is fortunate to get to do quite a bit of research. Um, so am I uh, a legal-minded scholar and subject matter expert in space law? Yes. Am I a practicing day-to-day -day space lawyer? No. So I, I think that would be the most um, fair and reasonable um, way to, 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 to categorize myself. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, that's fair. I was going to say, I definitely think of you uh, as a speaker and a writer as well as I don't, I mean, you said the word administrator, but I think of you as a director. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I consider my dean and all of those folks administrators as well. And maybe that's a, a vernacular that is kind of specific to education. So yes, I'm a leader and a director, but you know, my primary role here is um, to develop the program, which is sort of an administrative duty. Um, and of course I have support in that endeavor, but Primarily, I'm an, I'm an administrator as far as development of the program. But like I mentioned, and like you said, I, I do get the opportunity to do lots of writing and speaking on my subject matter expertise, um, which is in the, to the benefit of the program and to the benefit of my own personal scholarly career. Yeah, and I think maybe from a general public standpoint, maybe you know, people really undervalue administration of things. Um, <laughs> and how, how truly important and difficult 
it can be and how valuable uh, good administration is. And I'm sure administrative lawyers would also say that they are undervalued. <laughs> that is probably true. I, I, I probably take what might be an unfavorable opinion among administrators where I, my reality is that I can't do what I do without faculty and I can't do what I do without practitioners. And I, my job is to support those teams and to build it and to build something that I am passionate and excited about. So um, my, their position and their role in all of this is just as important, if not more so than mine, but that's not to say that my position isn't important too, right? We work together as a team. We're all just in different roles and different pieces to um, what we hope is a successful and interesting puzzle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, you know, using the analogy of puzzles as a rough transition, there are a few people in our profession who I think of as having like very singular jobs. You know, there's like only one of those jobs available uh, for anybody at any one time. And I, I describe your job as one of those very unique jobs in our space law community. Because, I, again, I guess I should uh, disclose I am an alum of the University of Nebraska Law Program. But as far as the, the strength of the University of Nebraska Law Program, your, your position isn't really matched by anybody else at any other university. Yeah, in most other programs, the head administrator is also usually a faculty member. And so I'm a little bit unique in that I'm not one of our faculty members, but I am still the uh, a leader in this program. And I, and I think there's a couple different reasons that ours works out that way. One is that I made this job. This job didn't exist when I took it. In title, it existed, but it was a very different position. It was part-time, and it was 100% recruitment-focused and 100% student services focused. And those are still two pieces of what I do, although I have assistance in those things now. But over the last six years, what I do and how I do it has changed tremendously in a lot of different ways. And so I think that's part of the reason that it's sort of a unique position is, is because, frankly, I have crafted it very specifically to what I enjoy doing and what I'm good at doing and what I think best serves the university. And to be quite clear on that, I'm exceedingly passionate about Nebraska and where I come from. I'm a Nebraska native. And so building something here is to the benefit of a place that I care about a lot. And so that has been kind of an impetus for staying in, in my position and building something quite specifically in the state of Nebraska. Um, so it, it is absolutely a unique position. Although I, I do think it's fair to say that plenty of other schools that have space law curriculum, or even if they have a dedicated program, still have these administrative functions. Um, and so there are people I can talk to who um, have many of the same similar responsibilities I do have, but they're perhaps not uh, solely an administrator and researcher. Like I have kind of the luxury to be, frankly, it's, it's useful to um, my schedule and I have a very intense travel schedule and speaking and, and writing schedule that I'm not teaching classes, <laughs> right? It's, uh, I don't have that um, weekly or daily, I don't want to call it a burden because I think they absolutely love teaching, but it, it definitely makes my schedule and my ability to take research contracts, which is a major component of what I do now, much different. Okay, and so before we move on, because it's relevant uh, to talking about your job and what you do, do you remember how we met? I do. You do? Uh, yeah. I have a Why? horrible memory. 
I, I think I know, but I can't quite remember. How we had dinner you- at the Dubliner, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, we met via email prior to that, but like in person, I think that was the first time we met. I was out in DC for our annual DC conference and I had reached out to both GW and Georgetown and American, but primarily GW and Georgetown who had space law societies or clubs and invited groups of students out to dinner to, you know, hear about what curriculum you had available to you at your schools and what you were interested in. And then, you know, of course, tell you a little bit about our LLM program and what we do here in Nebraska and kind of just, um, it, it, it was partially recruiting, but also partially data gathering and, and learning about um, that educational sector out there. And, and you were one of the groups of people that said, yes, I'll let you buy me dinner. And we had dinner at the Dubliner, if I remember. Did I get it right? That seems right to me. <laughs> when you say that, yes, I think that is correct. I was going to say maybe it was a Nebraska DC law conference when it used to be at the hotel conference room. It was at the W. I can't remember. We were at the Willard for a couple years, Willard. and I think that you probably did come to the conference the following day at the Willard, or at least that's what I was out there for. I think at that point in my career, I wasn't going out to D.C. nearly as much as I do now. So normally when I was out there, it was for something. <laughs> you know, I, I would add meals to a conference at the time. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't have remembered that dinner until you just mentioned it. But yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad I made an impression. There you go. There you go. It was that dinner. Yeah. It was that dinner. And then since that time, like I said in my introduction, I do feel like I was flattered to be recruited to the Nebraska LLM program. I went to Nebraska's East Campus for a year to study with the professors there, and I earned my LLM. So thank you for that opportunity. And if I didn't at the time say, uh, thank you for dinner. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure you did say thank you for dinner. <laughs> How did you get interested in this area of law? And when, when in your journey did you first think of space law? Well, I'll tell you... Everyone in my life was shocked when I even mentioned the the idea of going to law school. Um, I was not somebody who thought that I wanted to engage in law or politics at all through high school and really into my college career. I was a web developer. I was working for the Nebraska Supreme Court developing websites to train guardian of items in the rural parts of the state where they couldn't get to CLE or continuing legal education meetings. here in the eastern part of the state where the major population is. And as a part of that, as we launched these online training websites, I traveled around to these towns of, you know, anywhere from 200 to, you know, maybe 10,000 people with a group of lawyers to go out and train attorneys in these rural populations. And, you know, this was in family law that were guardian ad litem, so it was primarily focused on children in the court system. Uh, But I spent weeks with these lawyers and I thought what they did was really interesting. And I I decided I wasn't really satisfied with uh, my day to day. I got really bored as a programmer. I wasn't feeling like it was the right path and calling for me at that moment. And I thought what these lawyers were doing was really interesting from a thought process perspective and how they approached problems and how they approached their careers. But I I didn't necessarily want to stay or go into family law like they did. Um, And so I thought, well, maybe I can use my background in technology and my love for innovative technology 
in my legal career if I was to explore that and um, kind of found some options for that. So I decided to go to law school. Um, like I said, everyone in my life was supportive, but surprised. And I came to Nebraska. It made, I applied to several other schools actually, but it made sense for my husband, my then fiance and I um, to stay in Nebraska. Kids were on the horizon and we were shopping for houses and doing that whole phase of our life. And for the ranking and with the in-state tuition, it, it just made sense for me to stay in Nebraska, um, which ended up being pretty serendipitous. So we, we stayed here and I'll be honest, I specialized in cyber. I had nothing to do with space in law school. That, that Our program had just started here in Nebraska, but I didn't take any of the space programming. I did um, the minimal amount of telecom courses that we offered at the time. We really hadn't specialized much in cyber yet. And so I went off and studied for a period of time at William & Mary out in Williamsburg, Virginia, who was offering cyber coursework at the time. And it was really domestically focused and crime focused. The uh, lead faculty there was um, a former prosecutor who had specialized essentially in child pornography cases, which had a lot to do with digital evidence. And so I had spent quite a bit of time with them working on domestic cyber issues and, and researching in that subject area and enjoyed it. Um, about nine months after I graduated with my law degree, the job I'm in right now, which I mentioned earlier, I started as a part-time position, came open. And I was working in one other part-time legal job. And some of the faculty here reached out to me and said, you know, I, I thought you maybe you'd be interested in this. <laughs> At the time, I said, oh, I don't want a part-time job. I'm really, I, I need to pivot into a full-time job. And he said, it still has benefits. And I was like, I will be there Monday. Because um, <laughs> we had just had our first child and we didn't have health insurance. And so that was, a, well, we had private health insurance, which was exceedingly expensive. So that's kind of, and of course, I still had to interview for the job and get the job. But then once I was here is really where I pivoted my um, expertise that had a little bit more to do with domestic cyber policy and sort of telecommunications policy and privacy into space. And I, as an employee, had the opportunity to audit every single class that we offer and kind of learned under some of the most renowned experts in the country, right? We have Franz Vonderdunk here and Matt Schaefer here, who are both prolific in this particular subject matter. And I was able to be a part of all of their classes and um, get all of my kind of counseling there. And I, you know, I've always been a nerd into science fiction. So it was easy to get excited and to get interested in space law from there. So you didn't study space law until after graduating. Yep. <laughs> I realize how ridiculous that sounds now. But <laughs> absolutely. I mean, another way you could phrase it was that you uh, studied space law for free. Yeah. Uh, and in many ways, yes, absolutely. I studied space law for free, um, auditing these classes and, and reading their work and engaging with them, um, you know, traveling around to conferences with them, hearing them debate and talk about things. You know, the first three years, I did a lot of listening and not a lot of talking. And I, I, I think that was beneficial to me as I kind of absorbed the information and then started going out. And uh, I used to joke when I started public speaking on space law um, that I was always the B team and I was always sent to all these weird little public events, right? Because people will call the university and say, we heard you had this weird space law program. Someone come talk to us. And they send me. And um, it's been wonderful. And it has really helped me develop my speaking career. And I still occasionally do some of those random little public events. But for the most part, I've kind of pivoted into... I don't know, probably more, I don't know the right word, scholarly <laughs> types of events and settings. But uh, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time listening to my colleagues the first three years I was here. 
now let's let's broaden it a little bit um, from your studying of space law from listening to your colleagues talk about space law what does space law mean to you <laughs> so when i talk about space and I'm, I'm doing air you can't see it but i'm doing air quotes around space law when i say space law to me that is a description of something that i kind of I, I dare to say this, kind of consider it a subset of international law, right? Of course, there's tons of domestic law in there that interplays and there's comparative law things there. But I, I see it, people who are specialized in space law are in many ways international law experts. And when I'm talking about the body of laws that impact space, I'm thinking of treaties, liability convention, the actual pieces of law themselves laws that are directed at activities and uses of outer space. My previous guest, Chris Hearsey, talks about how annoyed he is when people quote Lex Spatialis, as if <laughs> space law is somehow so unique and outside of international law that is, it is its own foundation. And he, he very much is like, no, it, it is only international law. There are specific treaties, like you said, but the treaties explicitly also state that, you know, they don't just wipe away international law. International law is the foundation, and this is just a special extension of that. Yeah, absolutely. I would concur with that. Let's talk about what is going on in space law right now. What are some of the big issues that you are seeing or talking about or dealing with in space law? I mean, everyone wants to talk about the Space Force. I mean, that's <laughs> is that a legal question, though? I mean, like you said, domestic well, in some law. some ways, yeah. I mean, I spend a lot of time educating newspaper reporters that, you know, Congress has to amend Title X. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's a constitutional question. It's an yeah. So, I mean, so is there legal questions there? Absolutely. And then is it political? Absolutely. And so, no, I, I think there's absolutely room for policy and legal-minded individuals to pitch in on the Space Force debate. And we certainly find ourselves talking about it a lot. Uh, at a more narrow, I think, less public level, two of the big things that I think about would be space traffic management and then on-orbit activities. So things that are, you know, that fall in between the gap of launch and reentry are kind of the other two hot topics or things that we find coming up over and over again at conferences are, are, are kind of fall into those two subject areas pretty frequently. There's other things too, but those are the two that come to mind. Yeah, I remember when I had my first internship at the FAA Office of Commercial Space, I had this whiteboard in my cubicle and I drew this sort of crude arc of, it, it looks more like a ballistic missile than a satellite, but it basically <laughs> is just an arc supposed to say like, here's the launch phase, here is the on-orbit activity phase, and if we're dealing with something that re-enters on purpose, here's the re-entry phase. And I knew at the FAA, we handled launch and we handled re-entry, but over this imaginary line of the atmosphere, there was all this on-orbit space that wasn't explicitly licensed or as regulated as launch and reentry. There was that sort of shared jurisdiction with the FCC having one aspect of it, with NOAA having another aspect of it, but nobody was as, as much of a gatekeeper when it came to on-orbit activity. 
And, and I think that's largely still the case. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people want to want to fill that vacuum. I just mm-hmm. saw today that the FAA announced their new uh, associate administrator for commercial space. Monteith. Maybe I'll go back and edit in his real name. And I remember I attended, I think this was while I was doing my year at Nebraska, I um, submitted a short paper and got to present it at the first space traffic management conference. Oh at, yeah, at Embry-Riddle. Yeah. Um, and their keynote speaker one of those days was Jim Muncie. Oh yeah. Um, and the thing I remember from his talk at the space traffic management conference was how much he didn't like the phrase space traffic management. I have also heard that speech, yes, and uh, and there's some fairer thoughts in that. Yeah, I, I think one uh, um, an interesting piece, and I wouldn't do it service, but somebody could, I'm sure, look up her work. But Diane Howard, who runs that conference in Embry Riddle, at a conference that I invited her to earlier this year at Strategic Command, she did an amazing job of drawing the nuances between space situational awareness and space traffic management, and how those are two different issues and how we should think about them differently. And like I said, I would encourage people to look up Diane Howard's writing and work and thoughts on the matter, because I think she does a great job articulating some of the ways that we can approach them from policy perspective. Is the difference sort of like the difference between defensive driving or having a traffic cop tell people when to go? (laughs) Well, it's the difference between monitoring and affecting. So I I suppose yes. (laughs) Sort of. <laughs> okay, yeah. Now, I remember one of the first things that really struck me about space situational awareness was when they were talking about how you really need to have this sort of like all-encompassing idea of everything that's in space because if you were just relying on individual satellites to have their own sensors, it's really hard to sense and avoid something that a collision that will be happening at faster than 18,500 miles per hour. Yeah, absolutely. That doesn't give you a whole lot of time to sense somebody's coming yeah. up on your rear or something. So that's tough. That's a tough issue. We, we've already talked about people have differing ideas about these things. So do you think there's any current misconception in the general public about space law or a particular space law issue? As far as the general public, I just spend a lot of time at events and dinner parties explaining that it's a thing, right? (laughs) Um, That space law isn't completely in the realm of the hypothetical. Very often, even, you know, some of the newspaper magazine articles that I've done, all the journalist wants to talk about is, you know, murder on another planet or um, what happens when the aliens finally come and those sorts of questions. And those can be interesting hypotheticals. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever test hypotheticals. That's that's what lawyers and particularly legal education does, right? Is think in the hypothetical. But but space law isn't hypothetical. There's real current business law considerations to be made here and international law considerations to be made here that are real time and that are not hypothetical by any stretch of the imagination. And so I think a lot of people think, well, this is going to become a thing. And I say, no, it's already a thing, right? This is, uh, there's a, satellite industry out there facing this regulatory scheme. <laughs> it's, in, it's a real non-hypothetical body of law. And so I think that's my most frequent conversation with people. Once you kind of explain that, 
they, they, you can see the light bulb turn on, right? There's a moment where they think, oh, yeah, obviously. <laughs> that there's, there's really lawyers that do this. And we, there's maybe a small group of people. It's not as big as other areas of law, obviously, um, but is already a viable and regular practice area. Yeah, I, I got to present at a chapter meeting of a local National Space Society group. And towards the end of it, there was one person who was just like, uh, who was just flabbergasted. And they're like, and, and there's a career in this? Like, somebody would actually pay you to do this? And I was like, yes, it's called the military industrial complex. And they, <laughs> yep. they pay lots of people to do things, including lawyers. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I think that's the biggest public misconception is that we are not entirely in the land of the hypothetical and that they can talk to us about more than, you know, something that they might see as a 20 year future issue, that there's there's current modern issues. So we've covered a lot of ground and you've talked about how you developed, how you A, started studying this, B, how you developed this job for yourself. So I uh, would like to end this segment with advice for people who want to learn more about this and maybe get into this as a possible career. So let me start by asking you, um, and you probably give these talks as part of your job right now anyways, but what advice would you give anyone who is pre-law or pre-graduate school if they say that they're interested in this subject? So I think if you if you haven't gone to law school yet, I think it's important to get a lot of writing experience. People always ask what classes they should be taking. And in some ways, there's certainly classes that will help prepare you. I think a background in national security is also in international relations is also incredibly useful to people who want to be in space law, simply because so much of modern space policy is really a, a diplomatic and political challenge just as much as it's really a legal challenge because of the international nature of the of the specialty. So people can come in with a strong background in basically political science and national security and some of those other issues, I think, have a stronger foundation to build upon. Now that's, you know, I say this as somebody who came in with a, a computer science background. So I had none of that, right? I think you can come in with any background and just stay open-minded. There's a lot of different pathways and specialties within space law, right? Not everyone who I think I would term a space lawyer is really doing space law, you know, in the big quotations, talking about the treaties and so on day to day. Most of them are doing business law or export control and administrative law and some of those other subject areas. And so there's many, many classes that you could take in your undergraduate fields that would be useful and of benefit in this particular subject area. I think it is good to express an interest in space. I, I think a lot of um, this community appreciates that many of us are passionate about this outside of just it being our jobs, that we care and find space interesting and exciting. And especially since a lot of the space law jobs aren't necessarily as exciting as they may be sound based on their titles. Right? It is a lot of export control and it is a lot of administrative law and other areas of law that I think um, many lawyers would not consider thrilling. But if you're passionate about the support of the mission and you're passionate about the support of the industry, then it is interesting work and it is exciting work. And um, that's somewhat similar to the advice I would give law students and grad students. But really at the undergrad level, I, I just encourage people to be open-minded and to take lots of different types of classes and to engage with space in a lot of different ways. 
And so for people who now are current law students or graduate students, do you have any specific advice for them? Because, you know, if they're already in graduate school and law school, there are a lot of priorities that they're having to juggle. Uh, There are a lot of demands on their time. So what, what can they do that's the most time effective for them if they want to pursue this long term? Mm-hmm. I think writing and grades, you know, no one ever wants to hear that answer. They want to hear, go to all the conferences. <laughs> and those things matter. I think you need to be connected and you need to meet people. But grades are often a barrier for some of these positions. And so I think that matters. I think also networking within the community is important and is quite essential, especially during those, I think, first two to three years out of law school. And I think one of the things I talk to students about quite a bit is having a reasonable expectation of how in-house counsel might hire. If you want to go work in the private sector in aerospace, it is incredibly rare to go straight from law school to an in-house counsel position in any field or specialty. Generally, companies hire from law firms and they hire from the government. And so I really encourage students to look at government jobs or transactional or administrative law firms to get some of that legal experience under their belt. Um, And then while they're getting that legal experience, I encourage them to try and maybe publish at least once or twice a year. And that doesn't necessarily mean in a law review, right? That might mean you write for um, one of the ABA forums, their, you know, quarterly publications, or your bar association probably has a monthly magazine or a quarterly magazine, you know, write something that's on an area of space law and submit it to those places helps you get noticed and it bolsters your CV and your resume when you're applying for spots after you've kind of gotten that, you know, first two to three years of experience out in the legal field. And so that's, that's my first piece of advice usually to law students and grad students is to have an understanding that while certain cases exist, it's pretty rare that you're going to go straight from school to working for the dream company. <laughs> There's usually a few more steps in between there. One of the things that we are doing right now through a project that we have with NASA called the Space Law Network, talking to students about developing careers in space law, I like to have anyone that I would term a space lawyer answer that question of what was your first job out of law school? And very rarely was it, I became an attorney at NASA, (laughs) right? Usually there's some other steps in between where they were getting legal experience or getting policy experience or doing something um, while they built up their connections in the field. Yeah, I can think of only one person who, with a smirk on their face, was like, yeah, my first job was at NASA. But other than that one person, no, nobody's, nobody's first job has ever been 100% explicitly space law. Yes, or, you know, I, you know, we had a student who went straight from our program to SpaceX, and that always sounds really great, but the reality is, is that she came to our LLM program after having, I think, almost 10 or so years in government contracting as an attorney, right? So... Was it her first job out of the LLM program? Sure. (laughs) But I think we need to take into account some of that other experience because that practical legal experience is key. These companies and these positions need someone who has some miles on them as far as being a practicing attorney. And that's a perfect transition for the last question. Advice for people who are already working professionals. So that that student you just you know exemplified, she had been practicing, like you said, already for ten years. So, what advice would you give people who maybe didn't invest that time in law school or yet in specifically the space law community, and they want to maybe make that transition? 
I think there's a lot of ways to show your interest in the space law community. Obviously, there's there's programs like mine. I suppose I can make that plug. We offer online part-time programs or, you know, if people have the capacity to take a year out of their career to go do an LLM in person, obviously also an option. And so that's one way to show your passion and desire. And, and I think there's use in that because the faculty and the individuals that work for programs like mine are, are relatively connected in the industry. And so we can help students build those connections, although ultimately... It has to be the student who, who builds some of that. One thing I think people don't take advantage of is events and conferences. And I don't mean attending. I think plenty of people attend. I mean, if there was somebody on a panel that, you know, you go to some, you know, CLE and it's on space and there was someone on a panel who spoke to you, write them a thank you note, and, and, you know, in, by, you know, with pen and paper and everything, or, or send them an email at the very least and thank them for their time. And don't ask them for a job, but thank them for their time and for their expertise and start to develop a network of people. I also think a lot of people are more fearful of publishing than they should be. I certainly was until I started doing it. I kind of thought there was an elite few who got to write papers and articles for things, and I wasn't one of them. And that, that's just wrong. There's plenty of publications out there, you know, ranging from the law review to the random blog that you can write something for and talk about that and help establish yourself as a subject matter expert in the field. And you can use those to send to folks. When you hear a panel that's on point, you can say, hey, here's this thing I wrote on it. I really loved what you had to say. And, and to take advantage of those experiences as more than just a passive observer but rather to turn those experiences into valuable connections. The other piece of advice I give a lot of working professionals is I think people see networking, like I just talked about, as a dirty word. They think networking means you're asking somebody for a handout or you're asking somebody for something and it feels yucky and it's embarrassing. My number one piece of career skills advice that I give right now is when you go into a networking event, everyone's worst nightmare, right? I'm an exceedingly extroverted, and even I am not excited sometimes to go to cocktail hours that are labeled networking event. But what I try and go into every single conversation thinking is, how can I be of use to this person? And start, instead of thinking how they're going to help me, I think about how I can help them. And then, and then I try to follow up and do that thing. And you know, students will look at me or young professionals will look at me and say, I have nothing to offer them. So you're thinking too narrowly. Maybe in this conversation you have over a glass of wine, they want to go camping this summer and you can give them some great advice on the best hiking you've ever done, right? We can all be useful to someone and that's how you create and foster relationships is by helping other people and inspiring them to want to help you because you were useful to them. So that's the other piece of advice I give is to think about networking as an opportunity to help others. Wow, that's, that's really good advice. And that's a really positive note to end things on. <laughs> okay. um, so Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on this podcast. Absolutely. I was happy to do it. Okay. I really have to write a closer. Thank you for listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com. 
and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom. So I'm going to stop. I think I'm going to stop recording.